So the vision of Epic Church is that we want to be a church where this happens, an increasing number of people in San Francisco orient their entire lives around Jesus. And so anytime you see things that are happening in our church, you're like, oh, because they did that, I'm surprised that they do this other thing. It seems disjointed. But I want to give you two things that flow out of this big vision that we're constantly driving after opportunities to help people orient their lives around Jesus because we believe Jesus has implications for all of life. So here's the two things. One is 10 days from today, we have an event called Start. And it's, you're like, why would a church do an event for entrepreneurs? Because we don't believe God has positioned us on accident. We don't believe God would position entrepreneurs here. It's kind of the, sort of the, the hotbed of startup world and would position our church here in downtown and go, we don't need to speak into that at all. And so on this Wednesday night, or not this Wednesday, 10 days from now, the 22nd, March 22nd, an event called Start. Here's who it's for. Anyone who has started something and would love to uh, learn more as well as be a person who would network with others, anyone who's desiring to start something, or even if you're like, that's too risky, but I would love to be a part of a team where someone else takes all the risk, you can come too. Or if you're just interested in that, we've got some spouses who aren't interested in that for their own lives, but because of who they're connected to or maybe who they're dating, uh, they want to be a part of that event. And so if you've ever uh, wanted to do anything with that, especially in a church space, come join the 70 plus people that have already signed up. It will really be fantastic. The reason we need RSVP is twofold. One is so we can order the proper amount of food. We'll have dinner uh, around the table that night together. And number two is you're going to be sent back a short survey so you can tell us, here's kind of where I'm at in life relative to this conversation. Here's the pressure points that I'm dealing with. And what's going to happen that night is just like you're in here doing today, there will be some large group things, but then all of us will be seated at tables and we will have an, uh, like an entrepreneur mentor at your table. And you're like, Ben, where are you guys hiring those from the outside? We aren't. What's amazing about what God has done in our church and how he's gifted people with that, every one of our table mentor leaders are, is someone who's an entrepreneur that's also a part of the Epic Church community. And so we'll talk about the practical things of raising money and when do you know it's time to jump, as well as how, how we're church, right? How does faith um, get fleshed out in my life? And so my guess is we'll end up somewhere around 100 people. But if you want to be a part of that, just write start on your communication card. And it's going to be such a significant event for us that I don't want you to miss it. We don't do those all the time because of what it takes to pull off just with arranging schedules. Uh, and so I would uh, take a rain check on whatever else you have planned right now and uh, fly back a day early if you're on a trip, getting back Thursday. That's going to be significant. Second thing is this. Next Sunday, we start a four-week teaching series called Unleashing Compassion. And I want to invite you to do two things. I want to ask you to do two things. The first thing I want to ask you to do is to be here for all four of the Sundays if you're in town. I think it's that significant of a series in this day and time especially. And number two, I think it is the perfect ideal series to invite someone in your world too. Even if they won't agree with all the Jesus and God and church stuff that we're going to talk about some in that series, who in the world at this present time doesn't want to see more compassion? The reason we're doing this series that's been planned for several months now is twofold but they're connected. One is we see compassion as largely absent in our world, but when we read the scriptures and see how Jesus wants us to follow him, we see that it should be something very present in our lives. And so there's not enough of it. We're supposed to do it. And so we're going to look four weeks at unleashing compassion. Here are the four ideas for that uh, teaching series. Week one, starting next week, will be what does God's compassion towards us look like? Week two, why is it, if you're like me at all, why is it that I struggle to give compassion most to those I love most? Anybody besides me? That's great. Now I'm just me. It's just me. It's just everyone else is amazing. They're batting 100, you know, 100% on, uh, on their compassion. So anyway, week two, it'll be just for me. But week three, we're going to talk about what it looks like to unleash compassion on our enemies. 
Uh, and then week four, what does it look like to unleash compassion in our world? And so, uh, again, make plans to be here all four of those Sundays. When you are out of town, catch the podcast and find a Sunday in there, if not multiple Sundays, to invite someone in your life to. Again, even if you're like, oh, I don't know if they'll agree with everything. Uh, does anybody ever agree with everything I say? No. I'm well aware of that, and I'm good with that. I'm good with that. But it'd be great if they're interested in that sort of conversation around compassion in light of the times and world in which we live. I think that would be significant. But for today, we've got to conclude the made for this series, don't we? We've got to put Esther's story to bed, so to speak, and we're going to do that. Have you ever been in the middle of something and you didn't know exactly how it was going to end? You didn't know exactly when it was going to end, but you were pretty convinced it was not going to end well? You ever been in a job interview and two questions in, you know, like, do I leave now? You ever been there? You ever been as a student? Has you ever, have you ever been in that class and like they're going through the syllabus and already you know it's not for you? I don't know how this is going to end. Oh, I do know when it's going to end. It's ending right now. But you've been in those moments. You ever had that conversation with a boss and you can tell by the fact that they won't look you at the eye? I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know when this is going to end. I'm just pretty convinced it's not going to end well. But you can imagine as we've learned along the way in Esther's story, there had to be so many moments in her life where she had to think, I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know exactly when this is going to end, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to end well. You can imagine someone would have that frame of mind when they start off losing both their parents as a young girl. So both her mom and her father die way too young, right? And she's raised by her cousin, Mordecai, who becomes her adopted father. But she's got to think, this, is, this isn't going to end like I want it to. And then you get this moment where she becomes the queen in the Persian Empire around 580 BC or so. And King Xerxes is her husband and the king, obviously. And she doesn't know probably how that's going to end because she's a Jew. And so far, she's been able to keep that under wraps. But for how long? Who knows? And then you have this moment where Haman is put in office, and he's second to King Xerxes, and he's, a, he's an evil man, and he's so self-absorbed, he wants everyone to bow before him, but Mordecai refuses to bow, and so he's furious, and he decides he doesn't want to just kill Mordecai, he wants to eradicate all of the Jews. And so now there's an edict that's been issued that all the Jews living in the 127 provinces of the Persian Empire are going to be destroyed, and that's another moment for Esther and Mordecai that they're thinking, what, this isn't going to end well. But Mordecai says, Esther, hold on. You've got to think about God positioning you. Who knows that you've been brought to this royal position for such a time as this? And he's like, I want you to go forward to the king, even though he hasn't summoned you, and I want you to beg for the mercy of your people. And as Esther goes to the king, knowing it could cost her her life, she obviously knows in that moment this might not end well. But she goes, and it actually ends pretty favorably. Because remember, Proverbs 21.1, in the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all those who please him. If God's channeling water in one direction because of you or another, make sure he's channeling it in your direction because you're one of those who please him, not a king standing in his way. We're either aligned with God's purposes or we're in rebellion towards God's purposes. There's not just this middle ground. And so the king has favor. He says, not only am I not going to kill you, Esther, it is your lucky day. I'm going to give you up to half the kingdom. And she says, well, just come to a banquet. And so the king and Haman come to the banquet. And at that banquet, Esther says, come to a banquet tomorrow. And then I'll tell you what I really want. And along the way, Haman has a pole set up near his house where he's going to kill Mordecai because he's just so infuriated by him. 
And then Mordecai ends up being honored by Haman, as we looked at last week, because the king wants to honor Mordecai for sparing the king's life. Well, today we're going to step into banquet number two, and it's all going to happen right in this moment in a message I'm calling Poetic Justice. So if you have a Bible, Esther chapter 7. If you need a Bible to follow along, just raise your hand and our team will get you one. Esther chapter 7, and a few themes we've looked at in the series to give you just this reminder about where we've been, what we've been looking at. We've been looking at, can we trust God when things don't look so great? We've been looking at the idea of how do we leverage what God has put into our hands? And then what does it mean for other people? What is my life to be about? So would you stand with me? Esther chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and then we will wrap the series up over the next 20, 25 minutes or so. Esther 7. So the king and Haman went to, ban- to, went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked the question he'd asked twice already. Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition. And spare my people, this is my request. For I am, and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Anybody ever have someone in their life that uses a lot of words to say just the same what one word would have done? <laughs> it's not a, not a, she's making her point known. Like, King, if you don't understand destroyed... Killed? Annihilated? If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. It's like he's learned the secret about counting to 10 when you're angry and walking away. The kings in the day didn't do those sort of things. Now, his resolve is going to be the same when he comes back. But anyway, proud of him. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. Mm. (laughs) He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impel him on it. So they impelled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. You can have a seat. You can't make this stuff up. So Haman, poor guy, not really, I'd have no mercy for him. He talks about how the man the king wants to honor should be honored, thinking it's for him, and he gives it to Mordecai. He has a pole erected near his home, we find out in this text, thinking it's for Mordecai, only it's going to be for him. So finally, Esther gets around to saying what she wants. It's the third time she's been asked the question by the king, third consecutive day, and she finally answers it. And she says, what I want is for you to grant me my life. Why does she say that? 
because she knows what's happened to prior queens who did things they weren't allowed to do. As we learned in week one, she knows that Queen Vashti has been deposed of by King Xerxes, and that because she's approaching him without going through the proper channels, he might do the same with her. But when she says, grant me my life, period, she doesn't say, that's all I want, and move on. If I can be so honest to speak for myself and you, when life is not going like I want it to go, and I am asked to give a request of some type, I'm likely not going to include you or anyone else. When I'm clicking on all cylinders and everything's at a place of strength for me, then maybe. But we've got to get to a place, no matter what you are going through, that you realize there's life outside of you. And Esther doesn't make her life just about her life. But some of you, you ask requests of God for everyone else in your life and in the world, and you never ask God for what you need. And what I love about Esther, she's given both. I need my life spared, and I need the lives of my people spared. So some of you feel guilty for asking for your own request. Get over it. Ask. Others of you never get beyond asking for your own thing. Don't put the... Amen right there. God, would you help me? And oh, by the way, would you help them? God's not limited to one help. It's not a one-wish kind of thing. And so Esther in this moment, because she knows the edict's been issued, she's like, will you spare my people? And I love what she says. And I'm not saying we would, I don't look around and see a lot of people that would agree and do what she did. She's like, listen, if you had made us slaves, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be coming to you now. But this is a big deal, and I've got to step in and ask you to help us. And verse 5, the king says to Queen Esther, who is he that would do such a thing? Now you tell me, when the edict was issued to destroy all the Jews, whose stamp of approval was on the edict? The king's. You ever had a boss do that? That's not my signature. Someone is forging my name around here. Ever had that, had that moment? The king may have not been actively involved in this, but he certainly is passively involved in this. It is his stamp on the edict that's going to destroy all of the Jews. It is the king's stamp. But he's like, who, who is he? And then, have you ever had that moment? As an adult, it's the worst. But as a kid, you can remember when you thought you got away with something? only to hear your entire full name in a certain tone, likely by a mom or dad or a coach? You remember that moment? And you knew. You knew. I am not getting away with this guilty. And in that moment, you have to remember, there are only three people at the banquet outside of the servants. It's just the king, queen, and Haman. And Haman's like, don't say my name. Don't say my name. Um, Haman, there's no other name to say. And then she's, and it would be amazing to know how they were seated. Like, what was the table like? And who was on the same side? And it wasn't, you know. And then he's just like, it's this vile Haman. And he's like, done for. The king, to his credit again, steps outside. And as he steps outside, oh, the irony as now the one who had everyone bow in his presence, he's now bowing and begging at Esther's feet. And then Harbona says, um, Oh, by the way, king, because the king, remember, Haman never got around to asking the king about the impaling thing, which is good. It's one of those Proverbs 21-1 thing. It says, by the way, there is a pole near his house. And then that verse 10, so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. 
This is the definition of poetic justice. Poetic justice, where virtue is rewarded, a vice is punished, and an ironic twist of fate. Poetic justice. And as the story goes along, what happens is the king gives Haman's estate to Esther. The king gives his signet ring that Haman used to wear. He gives it now to Mordecai. Esther ends up giving Haman's estate to Mordecai. And there's an edict written that overrides the previous edict that allows the Jews to protect themselves. And then there's a little, as we go along, read the entire last three chapters or four chapters yourself sometime. But look at chapter 8, verse 15 through 17, how this thing ends up going. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And this is just funny to me. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. They just traded in their nationality card for another one, which is incredible. There's something happening in this moment that's happening throughout the story and that's happening throughout God's big story in eternity, and it's this. There's this realization that can reside over your life if it doesn't today, and it's this. Your story doesn't have to end where it began. Your story doesn't have to end where it began. Look at Esther's life. She begins as an orphan. She ends as a queen. Look at Mordecai's story just over the last couple of days in this historical moment. He is going to be impelled on a pole. All of the Jews are going to be killed, but he's going to be impelled. And he walks out of the king's presence, not being impelled on a pole. He walks out wearing the royal colors. Because your story doesn't have to end where it begins. But if I just said, look at Esther's story, look at Mordecai's story, the moral of the story is your personal story doesn't have to end where it begins, period, that would be true, but don't miss who else's story gets put into play in this moment. Who else is in this passage? It's Esther's story that doesn't end where it began. There's Mordecai's story that doesn't end where it began, but who else? The city of Susa had a joyous celebration, In a moment, the city goes from mourning and weeping to partying. And then I love this image. As they begin to get the edict out and deliver the paper to all 127 provinces, what happens? Fear gives way. Worry and anxiety give way. Shame gives way. Desperation gives way. Hopelessness moves on out because hope comes in with happiness and joy and gladness and honor and feasting and celebration. What does that mean? It means, yes, your story doesn't end where it begins, but God wants you to use that never, uh, that, that story that doesn't have to end where it begins. He wants you to leverage that story to give that same story to others. It would be amazing for Esther and Mordecai to have their lives spared. That is incredible. But because of what they did, not only were their lives spared, but an entire race. Story doesn't have to end where it began. You heard March 26th, we'll have a baptism celebration. And this is the statement that resides over that image, isn't it? You're lowered into the water. Hey, that story of sin, that story of separation from God, that story of never knowing God as Father, that can end as you come out of the water. The picture is you have this new life, this new identity, this new story in Christ. And if that's a step for you to take, don't miss your opportunity for yourself and for us in this community to make that statement, my story is different. 
Will's ready to meet with a group of people after this in the Connection Center just to ask, uh, answer questions. And it's that realization. Your story doesn't have to end where it began. Now, as you go through Esther, let me tell you something you'll read so you don't come back and say, you didn't tell us this. You will see the Jews, right, God's covenant people, using violence to get revenge. Okay? And this isn't the time or place, nor would I have enough if I had five hours with you to explain how do we reconcile the God of violence we see at times in the Old Testament and what we see in Jesus and all of that. But here's what I will say. The scriptures teach us that Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. The scriptures say that he was the exact imprint of the Father's nature. And so the question we have to look at to get this really clear, crystallizing picture is this. How did Jesus deal with his enemies? What did Jesus do when he had a chance for violence and revenge? Here's what Jesus did. When he had a chance for violence and revenge, he kept his mouth closed, and he laid down his life, and he gave himself up in death on a cross for his enemies. I'm not asking you to get rid of all of the questions you have relative to that subject matter, but I am asking you to see Christ as the full picture of God's representation. I think that's the way I want to lead you in that, and I think that's the right way for you to consider how do we get through all of this. There's a lot of things that cause us to go, I don't know, I'm with you, I'm there with you. But I want to see Jesus going, hey, I'm not getting revenge, I'm using my life and my death to lay myself down for my enemies. That's what I want you to do. All right, so before you go kill other races, like this is not the Jesus way, okay? So there are some things you don't want to apply from Esther, all right? 75,000 people killed, Mm mm-mm. I want you to see where Esther ends, literally with the last verse, and I want to build the rest of this talk and the conclusion of our series around this one verse. Esther 10, verse 3, is the last thing we have in Esther's story. It's about Mordecai, though, which I think is interesting. It says, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. He worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. I do not know what your specific purpose is from God. I don't, even those of you who I know really, really well, know your gifts, know your abilities, know your background, I still don't know. I will never claim to know exactly what God's purpose is for you. But I do know this, whatever your God-given purpose is, it is going to be about bringing good into the lives of other people. It is going to be about leveraging your story, leveraging your wealth, leveraging your influence, leveraging your position, leveraging your spiritual gifts to bring about good in the lives of others. And I love that about Mordecai. The reason that he rose in honor was because he gave himself, as did Esther, we know that too, for the good of people, and he spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. Your life is about more than your life. Do not settle for the small story that your life is about your life, period. It's always supposed to be about the good of others. So here's the question. What are you giving your life to that brings about the good of others? What are you giving yourself to that brings about the good of others? What are you bringing your voice to that would bring about good for others? Where do you need to use your voice to bring about the good of others? It said Mordecai spoke up. Some of you have been given a voice that the rest of us don't have yet. Or with the group of people that the rest of us aren't supposed to reach or reach yet. What are you doing with the voice God has given you? What are you doing with the time God has given you? Is it possible that you need to reallocate at least a portion of your time so that some time, for sure, is spent for the good of others? 
What are you doing with the money that God has given you? There are some people in our community who would love to be able to help, so they have the heart. They're just not in a place of financial means to be able to. But there are others of you, as we hear about all the craziness that's happened, some of you in this room are part of that. Some of you have more money right now than you ever could have imagined as recent as two years ago. And if you go, this is for me, period, that would be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. But some of you, your wealth hasn't escalated as much as your influence has escalated. And so you have to ask that question. Why do you have that influence? To be amazing? Why does Esther have the influence of being queen? So that she can have the influence of being queen? Absolutely not. So that she can leverage what she's been given. Mordecai leverages what he has been given. You need to do the same. I need to do the same. Esther's story reminds me so much of Joseph's story at the tail end of Genesis And if you remember, before Joseph becomes second in command of Pharaoh, that's one of the similarities, right? Mordecai becomes right-hand person to Xerxes. Uh, Joseph becomes the right-hand person in Egypt to Pharaoh. You can see that at the tail end of Genesis if you want to check out his story. But so many similarities. Joseph, before he became second in uh, charge, second in command to Pharaoh, uh, first he had to uh, be sold. He had to be wrongfully imprisoned. Then he had to be forgotten. And then he gets to that place. And at the end of his story, when he and his brothers, they've been reunited, and he's trying to help them understand what's been going on, to help them see that they don't understand the whole picture that's been in play, he says these words in Genesis 50, 20, and as you read and hear these words, think about these being the exact words that Esther and Mordecai could have said to Haman, okay? Like, just read these words, like, there's nothing we have to even change. Genesis 50, 20, this is Joseph to his brothers, but the exact same thing was true from Esther and Mordecai to Haman, Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's Joseph to his brothers, but Esther and Mordecai could have said the same to Haman. Haman, obviously, you intended bad for us. You intended that Mordecai would be impelled. You intended to destroy all of the Jews. Those were your intentions, but two of the most amazing words all throughout the scriptures are just that phrase, but God. This is what was trying to happen, but God. This is where I was headed, but God, but God, but God. And our reality is we need to be infused with hope more than anybody on the planet because we have that God reality over our lives. What you see in this text is that something you need to realize for your own life. There are people, if you don't know, with other intentions for your life. Do you know that? Some of you have parents that have intentions for your life that aren't God's intentions. Some of you have enemies that have an intention for your life that is not God's intention. Some of you are part of organizations and might even work for companies now or in the future. Does your company have an intention for your life? Really? They do. They do. Some of you might even be at a place where your native land has an intention for your life. Or you could even be here in the U.S. right now and realize really recently that the U.S. government might seem like they have an intention for your life. But let me give you something that should blow your minds and infuse you with hope and confidence as you leave. There's another intention for your life. I love the words of Joseph. You intended. World, you intend. Government, you intend. Company, you intend. My boss, you intend. My ex, you intend. My friends, even, you intend. My parents, my enemies, you intend. But there's another intention about my life. 
And so tell me what I can't do. Tell me what I shouldn't do. Tell me what I have to do. But there is a sovereign intention over my life, and I will ride with that one. Some of you right now have let other people's intentions derail you from God's intentions for your life, and it's time to wake up and go, no more. People have told you you're not qualified. People have told you you shouldn't do it. People have told you you can't afford it. People have told you, why would you take a pay cut? People have told you you might not get to stay in this country any longer. And you need to realize there are implications and you need to see all of those. But God has an intention behind your life. And you will get on board with one of those intentions. And the beautiful news is this. Only one of those is sovereign. Only one of those has been given all authority in heaven and on the earth. What are you going to do with that? Whose intention will you live out? The older I get, the less afraid I am to say these kind of things because I'm tired of hearing regret after regret of people who have lived out someone else's intention for their life. The God of the universe is your father. He's almighty. He's got a good plan. He wants to prosper you. He wants to use your life. He wants to bless you. You see, Haman wasn't just opposing Esther and Mordecai. He was opposing God. Nikki Gumbel, who leads HTB Church in London, he says this, the most foolish thing that any human can do is oppose God. The most foolish thing that any human can do is oppose God. I believe that's true. And because I think that's true, let me tell you this. This came from Ben, not Nikki. Then the wisest thing any human can do is align their life with God's purposes. And some of us want to stay in that middle ground. And Jesus was constantly saying, you're for me or you're against me or you're somewhere in the middle. No. You're for me? You're on board with what I want to do in your life and in the world, or you're not on board with it. The most foolish thing any human can do is oppose God. But will we trust God when we're in the midst of less than ideal circumstances? See, we've discovered this along the way in this series. Remember, seeing that God was at work is an observation. Believing it, that God is at work when we can't see the results, that is faith. So are you going to be an observer your entire life? Oh, thanks, God, on the back end. Or are you going to be a person filled with faith because of God's resume in history and in your own history and knowing the kind of story he wants to write and go, God, I don't see a way out yet, but I'm going to trust you. I believe that you have the power and you have the intention. And when power and intention come together, who are you going to stop? What are you pursuing that demands divine intervention? Because whatever God has for you, you will not be able to pull it off by yourself. What are you pursuing that demands God's activity, his movement? Are you going after anything that you can't pull off yourself? Lean into his ways. And then are you going to leverage what God has given you? Listen, I'm guessing you're not going to be a king or a queen. Anybody? I'm all about bowing to royalty if you're in the house. And maybe you're not going to spare an entire nation. But, oh, friends, God has a part for you to play in his story. 
And that part's got to involve you leveraging what you've been given, your voice, your resources, your time, your passions, your spiritual gifts, your network. It involves that. And if you leverage what you've been given for the good of others, I think you will find yourself right behind the Jesus you claim to follow. Let me say that again. If you leverage what you've been given for the good of others, I think you will find yourself right behind Jesus, the one that we claim is leading the way, right? Because in Mark's gospel, in a similar way to Genesis 50, 20, here's what Jesus said about himself. For even the son of man, even the one who gets all honor in the end, he did not come to be served. He did not come to make his life about his life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So you see that word many in Esther and Mordecai's story. You see it in Joseph's story. You see it in Jesus' story. And I know what you're thinking, Ben. I don't have influence with a lot of people. There's like one or two people that even care what I have to say. Start there. Jesus said those who are faithful with the little will be given more. Shauna and I felt like God was calling us to add to our family, and so we began that crazy adoption process in the country of India. And it's a lot of miracle stories there on their own, but you might think that once Kavita joined our family, that was the whole point. Like, that's it, period. But you need to know, and we don't know what it's going to look like, and we've got an uphill climb, just like all of us do in some way in life. But her coming home into our family isn't about her coming home into our family, period. We are saying to her right now, God, no matter what you believe because of your past, God has gifted you and equipped you, and he's going to impact other people through you. You just need to believe and hang in there with us. See, we get these one things that are amazing. We think it's got to stop here, and what God wants to do is not stop it there. Some of you have many that you're already influential with, and you need to be really strategic about what you do with that. Others of you need to start at the one place with the one person, with the one item, with the one conversation, with the one relationship that will become many at some point in time. Only in the last year have I I begun doing this, but I have, in the last year, set a goal for the number of people that I want to influence through my life and ministry. I will never know this side of eternity if that comes about. And when I look at how this thing started, our church with the living room, 13 people. 13 people. What is that, right? I started where I could. One person, five people, start where you can. There's no telling. And if we invest our lives the right way, there will be an increase in that number even after we're already with Jesus. I started this series by saying this. Every one of us make our lives about something. And whatever you make your life about, that's your mission. So to conclude this Made for This series, what is your life going to be about from this day forward? Would you pray with me? These big existential questions could cause you more paralysis than movement, and that's not my aim this morning. I believe God's wanting to write a new story for you. And as you hear Jesus say, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, there's really one of two considerations for every person in this room. The one is this. If you've never counted yourself as one of the many, today the invitation is for you to see Jesus giving his life for you so that you might step into this 
father-child relationship with God, that you might know a new story, that you might receive a new identity. And you can let us know that in the Connection Center or out in the lobby, or you can write that on your card. We want to help you in that. For those of us who do follow Jesus, the question has to be, what is my life about? And what am I doing with what I've been given and where I've been placed? Esther said, grant me my life, but also spare my people. And it was written about Mordecai. He worked for the good of the people and he spoke up for the welfare of the Jews. What are you going to put into play with what you've been given for the good of others? God, I pray that you would come and you would, your presence would be as palpable as it's been at any moment this morning. God, I pray that we wouldn't just try to rush out of our thoughts and considerations and questions, but we would sit in those. God, our lives have been about our lives for too long, and you want to make our lives about more than just our lives. So help us to follow you in that, Jesus. Pray that many would meet you for the first time, receiving that invitation that you would give your life for many. You would come to serve us. And then, God, we would take up that mantle of giving our lives away for others. If that starts with one or if we're already at a place where you've given us a platform to influence many, help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. I really feel like this song that Brad's about to introduce, lean in and listen and feel free to sing it as you catch on. I think it's going to become a banner around here for us. This recognition that you've been invited in. Don't stay on the outside of this thing. Jesus has invited us close and we would be crazy to see our whole lives pass us by and never get in on what he has for us. Friends, that would be tragedy and I don't want to see that in your life. Lead us.